So for the, for the past few weeks, we've been going through this series on the book of Daniel. And uh, the topic that's been recurrent as we've been going through the series is the believer's role in society or in culture. How do we deal with a culture that's around us that believes different things, that holds different values and principles? So we've been talking a little bit about this. And what Matt's been showing us uh, through the story of Daniel is an act of resilience. That is, it's uh, your engagement with a culture, so you engage with the culture. You don't seclude yourself, you don't remove yourself from it, but you are in the midst of, of the culture, of the society, but yet you don't lose your beliefs, you don't lose your values, you don't lose your principles. Uh, actually, you try to share these values. You try to give this different... Uh, approach or this new way of life and to display this to people. So our text today is going to deal a little bit with um, how do we engage with the other, but it's not going to be in Daniel. It's not going to be in Revelation. I usually <laughs> I have a tendency to do things in Revelation. Uh, it's going to be in the book of Mark in chapter 5. So I would like to invite you to open your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. And we are going to read verses 21 to 24. And then we are going to skip to verse 35. And we're going to read from 35 to 43. It's a famous uh, story uh, with Jesus. So Mark 5, verse, uh, verse 21, starts like this. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Now verse 35. While he, Jesus, was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and he went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitakumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. 
And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for this morning that we are able to be here together and study your word more and see what you have to say for us this morning. So please uh, make our hearts open to, uh, to listen to what you have to say to us. That's what I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So just to give you some, some background on me, uh, as many of you know, I study theology at the university here. And one of my interests is uh, to approach the biblical text uh, with a focus on its literary aspects, uh, how the story is being told, uh, what's going on in the story, how the story develops. And part of this interest of mine is because uh, I've always... Uh, been in church, because my parents have always been in church, and one of the things that I would often hear growing up in church uh, from people is that they would say, oh, the Bible is just too difficult to understand. Sometimes I read a story, it seems like simple enough, and then by the end of the story, I'm like, okay, what do I do with this? I have no idea what to do with this. And it was one of the things that I struggled with, like, how do I make sense of this? Do I really, can I only understand this only if I know the Hebrew and the Greek and the Aramaic? Or can I read this in English and still be blessed by it? So I, this is one of the things that, that's always in my mind. So what I want us to do today is sort of like an exercise in reading the Gospels. And I hope by the end, uh, we'll learn not only what Jesus' message is here in the story, but also we can learn a little bit about how to approach these stories. So whenever we have a story, uh, whether it's historical like ours or a fictional story, there are certain elements that we must pay attention to. One of them is the narrator. It's, it's someone who's telling the story. In our case, it's Mark. And, and it's important to know uh, that there is someone telling the story because not only he, is he going to tell the story, but sometimes he will tell us specific things that we need to know in order to understand the story. Much like, I don't know if you've ever watched uh, The Shawshank Redemption. It's one of my favorite movies. And, and in that story, Morgan Freeman is is the narrator, he's a, a person in the story, but he also narrates. And so the movie's happening and sometimes you'll hear Morgan Freeman's voice saying something about what's going on in Andy Dufresne's mind or something like this. And these are things that are important. And I remember this week as I was thinking through this uh, and I came to this example of the Shawshank Redemption, like, okay, I know what's gonna happen. I'm gonna read this and I'm gonna have Morgan Freeman's voice as I read through the whole thing, he has a great voice for stories. So the narrator is one thing. 
And, and why is this important for Mark? So, for example, when you begin the book of Mark, uh, Mark tells us straight from verse 1, he says, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he tells us straight from the get-go, uh, this is a story about Jesus, and you need to know one thing. He is the Christ, he's the Messiah, and he is the Son of God. Now, why is this important? Because as the story goes, and we look, for example, at the disciples, we see the disciples behaving in such a way, and we say, they're, they're always choosing the wrong stuff. But you say, yeah, but you're the reader. He already told you Jesus is the Messiah. They don't know he's the Messiah. They're going through this story with him, about to find out Peter is only going to say, oh, you're the Messiah in chapter 8. So our story is in chapter 5. They're still figuring out who Jesus is. Another thing in stories that are always important is the setting, where the story takes place. Sometimes it takes place in one location. Sometimes it takes place in several locations. And a third thing that's very, very important are characters, because they are the ones who say things, who do things, and it's usually because of them that the story moves along. And for characters, it's important to know uh, three things, uh, to pay attention to what they say, to pay attention to what they do, and to pay attention to how they are being described. These three things are very important when you're when you're reading stories. So having this stuff uh, in our minds, the narrator, the setting, and the characters, let's jump into our story and see what we can find out here. So the first part of the story is, begins in verse 21, and it goes until verse 24. And it begins by saying, And when Jesus had come, had crossed again in boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. In seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Okay, so setting. We are by the sea. And it says that Jesus has just crossed by boat and is here on this side of the river or of the sea. And there is a great crowd there that's following him. Now this, from the perspective of story, is already interesting. Because you say, okay, who are the characters in this place? Well, you have Jesus, you have this crowd, and you have Jairus. Now, if you look at the story that comes before this one, that's on the other side of the sea, there is also a crowd. But differently than this crowd, that crowd is in opposition to him. So crowds behave differently in the Gospel of Mark. Sometimes they are with him, sometimes they are against him. There they are against him because when he got to that side, there was this naked guy who was like demon-possessed, and Jesus expelled the demons. They went to like the pigs, and they jumped into a cliff. It's like a really, really cool story if you want to read later. And, and so the crowd gets very upset because they just lost 2,000 demon-possessed pigs because they fell into the sea. So the crowd is against him. So now Jesus crossed the, the sea, and there is this crowd who 
who is surrounding him. And, bec and it, that's because in this region, in Galilee, uh, Jesus' uh, reputation is already spreading. He's someone who performs miracles, who does all of these things. So they are, they, they, they are surrounding him all the time. So this is the setting. Now the characters. You have the crowd, Jesus, and Jairus. Now Jesus doesn't say anything in this passage. Uh, the crowd doesn't say anything in this passage. The only person who says anything here by the sea is Jairus. And now remember what I said. Pay attention to what the characters say. Pay attention to what they do. And pay attention to how they are being described. And the question is, how is Jairus described here? The story begins uh, on verse 22 by saying, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue. So here we have a hint. Jairus is not anyone. He is one of the rulers of the synagogue. He is one of the leaders in this religious society where they are uh, inserted in. Now, if you read, if you've been reading Mark and you get to chapter 5, you will already have met other types of leaders of that society. You will have met scribes and you will have met Pharisees. And one of the things that you will notice is that usually uh, these religious leaders stand in opposition to Jesus. So by the time you get to chapter 5, uh, Mark has already painted this picture for us and say, okay, so this whole world is divided into two groups. You have those who are for Jesus and those who are against Jesus. And usually those who are against Jesus are leaders of the religious society. So imagine if you are part of the crowd there, Jesus just crossed the sea, and you're there with him, and you see one of the leaders of the religious society approaching. Perhaps you're your reaction would be, oh, here comes trouble. Because you're expecting uh, a clash or like an antagonism to take place. But then something weird happens. Our expectation as readers is frustrated. Because instead of Jairus behaving like we expect him to behave, to be against Jesus, he does something really different. It says on verse 22, and seeing him or uh, and beholding him, Jairus does two things. He falls at his feet and he implores greatly or earnestly. So you're, you're in the crowd. Jesus is here. You see one of the leaders of the religious society approach and say, oh, here comes trouble. He's coming. Oh, what is he doing? He sees Jesus, and then he falls at his feet. And he begins to implore earnestly. So we're like, okay, the, this whole thing, like these two groups, this guy's behaving different. He's going on this side now. Why is he doing this? So why is he acting this way? We have the description. He's one of those. We have his action. He sees Jesus, he falls, and he implores. Now we have his speech. What does he say? 
my little daughter. And if you're a parent, you completely understand. He says, my little daughter is at the point of death. It's, it's impossible to translate literally what Jairus is saying, because if you were to translate literally, you would be like, my daughter is at the last. This will be like a literal translation of what he's saying. My daughter is at the last, means she, she's about to die. And then Jairus makes a request. He says, come and lay your hands on her. Because in previous moments in Galilee, Jesus has healed people by laying his hands on them. So Jairus knows this. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So as readers, we're like, okay, we have these two groups. I expect him to behave in a certain way. He doesn't. He actually does this radically different thing. He falls at Jesus' feet. He implores him to come to heal his little daughter. Now, my question as reader is, okay, he frustrated my expectation. Will Jesus stay on this side, or, we, or will he also build a bridge to Jairus? And here, we have no speech. We only have Jesus' action. And he went with him. So Jesus also bridges to Jairus' side. And then there is the crowd. What does the crowd do? And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So the crowd is here. They see Jesus. They see Jairus approaching. They're like, oh, this is going to be trouble. Oh, he fell at his feet. Oh, he's making this request. It's his little girl. Oh, Jesus is just going with him. What am I going to do? Okay, well, let's just go. So they go with him. So this is the first scene, by the sea. Now they all leave the scene, and they are on the way to Jairus' house. And then something else happens from verse 25 to 34, which I'm not going to explain. So, but you can use it like as a homework type of thing. Like, okay, why is there like a story in the middle of this story? And why is this story... Does this story have anything to do with the story of the little girl? Maybe. I'll let you find out when you read it later. Uh, then we get to verse 35. They are on the way to Jairus' house. And it says, While he was still speaking, Jesus, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? So, okay, setting. We are on the way to Jairus' house. Uh, who are the characters? We have Jesus. The crowd, apparently, is there with him. Jairus is there with him. But there is a new character that appears. Those from Jairus' house. And it's interesting, the way... Uh, Mark says this, he doesn't say those from Jairus' house. Okay. He says those from the ruler of the synagogue's house. And Mark really wants us to not forget that Jairus is part of this group. He's like, those from that group came. So what do you do? When he says this, you expect, okay, so Jairus has this, uh, 
what, what would I call, has this care for this little girl, and you expect them, who are in the same group, to also share the same feeling or appreciation or sentiment for the girl. So these people, they come straight to Jairus, and they are very direct, and they say, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Or why bother the teacher any further? Or why annoy the teacher any further? Which doesn't seem like a nice thing to say. I mean, if you're going to tell someone that their daughter just died, perhaps there's a better way than to say, she's dead. Uh, stop bothering him. But that's what they do. So you have on the way... Uh, Jesus, Jairus, they're going there, Jairus with the hope that his daughter will be healed. And then people from his house meet him in the middle, in the middle of the way, and they say, your daughter is, is dead, so uh, stop bothering the teacher. And then Jesus responds, but he doesn't respond to this group, he responds actually to Jairus. So Jairus is... There is no contact between Jesus and these people from Jairus' house. It's Jesus and Jairus now. And Jesus tells Jairus uh, two things. Don't fear, only believe. And then something else happens. And he, Jesus, allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James, and John, the brother of James. So, in the first scene, by the sea, you have Jesus, you have the crowd, you have Jairus. This request happens, everyone is on the way to Jairus' house, then they meet people from Jairus' house, the girl is dead, uh, don't bother the teacher anymore, Jesus tells Jairus, don't, don't be afraid, just believe, and by the way, no one is supposed to follow me. It's just me, Jairus, and the disciples. So all the crowd is left behind. Apparently, all these people that came from Jairus' house is also left behind. And now we move to the third scene of the story. Now we're at the house. Verse 38. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. He really wants us to not forget he, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion. People weeping and wailing loudly. As you would expect. They get to the house. And people are weeping and just crying. It's a very sad moment because this little girl passed away. And then we have Jesus saying something really weird. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, like I said, of all the things you can say to someone who is grieving because they lost someone, this might seem like a bad joke. Like, why are you crying? She's not dead. She's sleeping. Perhaps... Uh, my initial reaction would be uh, to be offended by this speech. Like, what are you talking about? She's, she's sleeping. 
that my initial reaction would be to be indignant with this type of uh, affirmation. But their reaction is really different. And they laughed at him. Or, in other words, and they mocked him. And I thought this was like, okay, I understand how Jesus saying might sound weird, but their reaction is even more strange. Because they say, okay, you're saying she's not dead, but sleeping. But then they mock him, and they laugh at him. I'm like, I, I, at least I wouldn't have the emotional, what would I call, ability to separate, okay, I'm weeping and wailing loudly, and now I'm laughing and mocking because of what he said. Now, there, 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 is, there, may, be a possible re there may be a possible reason why they do this, because in that culture, there were people who uh, were professional mourners. So whenever someone would pass away, you could hire people to mourn the passing of someone uh, close to you who passed away. Now, it might be that this is the case here, and you have these people who are just professional, uh, hired to do this, that they say, oh, what's ridiculous what he said. And then they start laughing because they have no attachment to the girl. It's, it's their job to do that. Perhaps it's that. And then you have Jesus' reaction to their reaction. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in, went in where the child was. So Jesus says, she's not dead, she's sleeping. There, this group who's like weeping loudly begins to laugh and mock him. Then he says, okay, well, the crowd is away. That other group is away. Now you guys, away. So he removes this other crowd. And he takes the father, the mother, and the disciples. And now they go into the room. So we have this movement in settings. We were by the sea. Then we were on the way to his house. Now we are at his house. And now we go in the room. And here is where the story is going to reach its climax. Now, you have to remember, in the room, who are the characters? Jesus, uh, Jairus, the father, uh, the mother is there, the disciples, and the little girl. They're all there right now. But the girl is already dead. And then verse 41, taking her by the hand. Now, this is very important when he describes what Jesus does as you know, characters, what they say, how they are described, and what they do. Jesus takes her by the hand and says, okay, well, that's what Jairus asked, to place his hands on her. And you can say, yes, but it, it, it's a different thing to say, place your hand on someone who is sick so that they may, they may be made well again. And in that culture, place your, your hand on the body of someone who is dead. 
For that culture, that's a sign of impurity. You, you, you just can't touch that people. There, there's, they were, it was a big thing for them. But Jesus takes her by the hand and he says to her, Talita kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And then, uh, with the saying of Jesus, what happens, uh, Mark says, and immediately, and Mark emphasizes, immediately, the girl got up and began walking. And she was 12 years of age. Similar to the woman in the middle of the story who for 12 years was suffering. But that's like a connection. You can read about it later. And she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately, again, overcome with amazement. And here Mark emphasizes a lot. And they were like, like the way he writes, he's like, and they were greatly, amazingly amazed. He's like very redundant in the saying, just to emphasize how amazed they were by what happened. And he strictly charged them that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So this is a story. Now, when I was thinking about uh, this story and what it might tell us, um, I was also thinking about the, the title of my sermon for today. And the first title that popped into my mind as I was reading this is uh, The Beauty Behind the Magnificence. And the reason why I thought uh, this title First, because I like the way it sounded, like the beauty behind the magnificence. But also because it, it tells something true about how we approach uh, stories. For example, we've been going through the story of Daniel for several weeks. So, of course, I expect all of us to know quite a bit more about Daniel. But perhaps before we started going through the series on Daniel, if I was to ask you, okay, well, what is the story of Daniel about? Maybe what you would say is, oh, yeah, the story of Daniel is that the guy who like, went into the lion's den and then God saved him. And so, now, when we look back in a response like this, we say, yes, but that's like one chapter. The book has 12. Why? Because it's such a magnificent event that our focus shifts completely to that. And, may, and, and as a result, we may end up losing all the other beauty behind the story. The same thing can be said with other stories of the Bible. If I was to ask, okay, what is the story of David all about? Oh yeah, David, the guy who killed Goliath, he like threw a stone and he died. So you have that. Uh, you have the story of Jesus himself. What is the story of Jesus? About, oh yeah, it's the cross. He died on the cross and he resurrected. Boy, there are four books on him. Maybe there's more there. Or what is Revelation all about? People say, I have no idea. <laughs> it's a weird one. So, and this story behaves the same. If I say, okay, what is the story of Jairus? Or what is this story about? It's like, Oh, yeah, no, it's the story where Jesus resurrects a girl who was dead. 
And you'll be right. It is an amazing act. It's the first time he does anything like this in Mark. But I want to show something else if we focus a little bit less on the magnificent event and maybe we can see other beauties behind uh, this event. Now remember at the, be at the beginning of the sermon, I said when we look at characters, you have to pay attention to uh, what they say, uh, what they do, and how they are being described. And I talked a, a lot about how Jairus is described as the ruler of the synagogue. And Mark does this all the time, the ruler of the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue. But there is another character that I want to look here, which is the girl. In the beginning of the story by the sea, how does Jairus describe the girl? In verse 23, he says, my little daughter. He uses this diminutive sense uh, in the Greek. He uses this diminutive sense to show uh, that it's a term of endearment. He's not just saying, my girl is nice. like, no, it's my little girl. It's like there is obvious uh, attachment to her. Obvious, because it's his daughter. But his little girl. So there is something that he deeply cares about, the little girl. This is by the sea. When, you go, when you're on the way, this crowd from his house, which you expect to share this same endearing uh, feeling towards the girl, what they say? What do they say? They say, your daughter is dead. There is no endearing term about that. Which makes us think like, okay, so she's obviously important to him, but for them, who are supposed to be like on the same team, they, they, they show no attachment to the girl. She's not endearing to them, apparently. And then we, we get to the house, then you have these people who are crying and weeping loudly, and when Jesus talks to them, they begin laughing, so there is this sense of detachment from them and the girl, and then Jesus says, she's not dead, she's sleeping. And he uses the same term that they are using, he says, the girl is not dead, she's sleeping. But when he goes into the room where it's just him and the parents and the disciples, and he takes the girl, he says, little girl. He also uses a term that is endearing. That can mean little girl, but can also mean little lamb in certain situations. So Jesus displayed the same sense of endearment or uh, care for the little girl like Jairus did. And this is something interesting, because as soon as Jesus does this, then the girl is resurrected, which is the... Amazing. And then Mark, who is the narrator, he's not even in the story, he's just telling us the story. He says, uh, and immediately, and what he says, immediately, the little girl, she 
immediately got up. So even Mark himself now shares the same sentiment of Jairus. And this is something interesting. It can be, for me, it's, it's, a, it's quite the lesson. Because uh, I remember one of the testimonies last week where, uh, where the girl talked about uh, going through a moment of struggle. And in that moment, the people who she thought were her friends weren't really. And this story seems to portray the same thing. You know, Jairus is suffering this thing because of his little girl and the people who are supposed to share in that same sentiment, who to, to are supposed to be with him as he walks through this, apparently they are detached from that situation. But Jesus, who is supposed to be on the other side, he's the one who shows this uh, sentiment. And this is something very interesting for us. As we go through the struggles and sufferings of life, we can be guaranteed that Jesus will be able to relate to our sufferings, even if we are in the opposite side. Now, this was my first title, The Beauty Behind the Magnificent. And then I was like, okay, but this is just one thing. Uh, maybe I, I should think of another title. And the title I decided to adopt for this is If the Shoe Fits, which has nothing to do with the first title, by the way. And the reason why I chose If the Shoe Fits is because I remember when, when I was younger and me and my brother, we would... Um, we would play with our friends and our neighbors, and we would play video games. You know, we would do all this kid stuff. And I remember, for example, when we would play Super Mario on the, on the video game, I would always tell him, okay, you're Luigi, I'm Mario. Why? Because I'm older, I get to choose, and I'm Mario, because the game is Super Mario. I'm, I'm him, you're gonna be Luigi. When we, would, when we would pretend to play like the Power Rangers, I'm like, okay, I'm the Red Ranger. I'm Jason. You, you can be Billy or <laughs> you can be someone else. I'm the Red Ranger. And when the green one came along, I'm the green one now. You can be the red. And when he became white, it just reaffirmed me. Okay, I'm really the white ranger now. You can be whoever you want. Or if you are pretending to be playing like in the Harry Potter world, like... I'm not Ron, you're Ron. I I'm Harry. I'm, I'm always going to be the main guy in the story. And this tells us something about stories. We always place ourselves in the hero's shoes. When we read stories, like, okay, uh, so I see this story of Mark and all that Jesus did and what happened. So automatically, let me place myself in Jesus' shoes. Because that's what naturally, at least I, what I would do. And then what are the questions that are raised if I place myself in Jesus' shoes? Will I show empathy for those who stand in opposition to me when I see that they are suffering? And will this empathy just be like, okay, I'm going to help him because I'm supposed to, because that's what we're supposed to do. Or am I really going to feel what they feel? 
And am I really going to like walk with them through that? Or am I going to be, maybe if I place myself in the crowd's shoes, oh, I'm just going to be a spectator. Uh, they're going through that thing. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm praying for you. But I'm not really going to walk with them. So if I place myself in Jesus' shoes, I can ask all these questions. Will I extend my hand to those who are hurting? Uh, not only to those who are hurting, but to those who are on the opposite side of me. And I think that's an important thing for us to consider. Uh, especially in times like ours today where everything is so polarized. And it seems that people who stand on different sides of different things, uh, they're not able to even talk to each other anymore. And I think as a Christian, we need to behave a bit differently. But like I said, I automatically place myself in Jesus' shoes. But there are other characters in the story. So if I remove myself from Jesus' shoes and perhaps place myself in Jairus' shoes, what are the questions that are then raised if I place myself in his shoes? Uh, if I'm going through this period of suffering, will those around me still be with me? Or will they abandon me? And what does this say about them? And what does this say about me? And if I go to Jesus, will he share this burden that I'm feeling? Will he relate to what I'm feeling? Will he respond to this? There are all these questions that, that arise. Will I, and this is maybe an important one, will I, in light of my suffering, will I fall down at his feet? And will I implore him? Or am I just too proud to do this? So there are all these questions that arise. And it's an important question because Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue. He's part of the leadership. But in moments like this, he humbles himself. And he places things in the correct order. But there is a third pair of shoes that I can place myself in, I don't know how to express this, which is not Jesus, it's not Jairus, it's not the crowd, but it's Jairus's friends. And this is like an uncomfortable pair of shoes too. Because the questions that arise is, how am I relating to those close to me? Am I showing empathy? Or am I being very cold about it? I see that they're suffering, and, and this is something that you hear very often in, not very often, yeah, but you hear quite a bit, uh, in Christian circles. You know, you, you share a struggle you're going through, and people say, oh, yeah, yeah, well, I'll pray for you. And not to say that prayer is, not a, is a bad thing, it's not a bad thing, but sometimes this can legitimately be, okay, I will be praying for you that God does something, but it can be like, oh, good luck. Sometimes this, I'll pray for you, can sometimes be a synonymous with good luck. I hope everything works out well. But it doesn't mean an engagement to it. So if I place myself in these characters, shoes, like, okay, how am I approaching these people? And when they go to Jesus... What will be my reaction to that? Will I say, okay, I know you're praying for that, but I don't think you should. I don't think anything is going to happen. 
So why bother praying for this? Why bother trying to do something about it? So is this feeling of uh, not only giving up, but of, of detachment to, to the suffering that people go through? So you have all these shoes that you can try to place yourself in, and they all raise different questions. And this is something, when I was reflecting on this, it, this made me realize that there is something very similar between Jairus, between Jesus, between Daniel, and between Nebuchadnezzar. Because Jairus has this moment where he places things in order. He understands God above him, even though he's a ruler. And he says, okay, I will fall at his feet and I will beg him because I know who he is and I know what I am. Even though I'm a ruler of the synagogue, but I know who I am and who he is. Jesus himself, throughout the Gospel of Mark, his mission is all about saying the kingdom of God is here. I'm here to establish the kingdom of God. He is in complete service to the kingdom of God. Jesus also has this mentality in play. Daniel, in our whole story as we've been looking at, he is part of the people of God. He is he's in exile. The, the empire is trying to rebrand him by giving him a different name, asking him to let go of everything that is uh, godly about him, and he just remains resilient. And his message to, to Nebuchadnezzar as all as also to Belshazzar, is you need to understand even though you're the emperor, God is above you. And Nebuchadnezzar himself understands this in chapter 4 in Daniel. When he reflects on all of his life, he says, yes, I was arrogant, I had majesty, I had splendor, and God humbled me so I could understand who he is and who I am. Once I understood him, this he gave me the splendor, he gave me the majesty back. But now my splendor and my majesty is uh, reshaped or reviewed in light of who God is. So this is th the first step we should take if we want to rearrange our lives to be in line with what God wants. We have to understand who he is. So I would like to ask you to bow your heads right now as the worship team will come up. And we will take communion. And this moment of communion is a moment where we can, we can think about what Jesus did in service of the kingdom so that we could be part of the kingdom. And if you're not a believer, I will... Just kindly ask you for you to sit this part of the meeting out. You can talk to uh, those of us who are going to be here in the front. We can pray with you and talk to you. But I would like to ask you for, in this moment of communion, uh, for you to be reminded of who God is in your life. Because once you place him in his appropriate place in your life, then you can begin to sort through all the other areas in your life, you can see which shoe fits in this story, where you are in this story. Perhaps you're in, you're in this moment more like Jesus or more like Jairus or even more like 
Jairus' friends, and you can reshape your life to, to be under God's authority, but also under his love. Because no matter what suffering you're going through, uh, he shares the same endearing sentiment. Amen.